0: you may be seated. This morning we're in week three of our study of the letter to the Ephesians that Paul wrote. Uh, Today we're really going to be looking at how one of the things that Jesus is doing in the cross and the resurrection uh, is that Jesus is tearing down the dividing wall of hostility. He's ending a season of enmity and prejudice that existed in, in the world where he was uh, living and walking and teaching. And it's one of the things that we often fail to talk about and think about enough when we think about what happens in the gospel plan. And so what we need to do before we get into why Jesus had to undo something that was broken is we need to look how it got broken and messed up in the first place. And so we're going to go back to the beginning briefly. Because in Genesis chapter 3, as Adam and Eve are walking with God in the garden, things are going very well. Things are, as God described it, very good. And there was a relationship between Adam and Eve that they didn't have any kind of arguments with one another. They had a harmonious relationship with God and the entire creation. The garden produced uh, fruit and food for them without them having to work it or to toil. And so they were able to have all of these uh, benefits and blessings without great effort. And we all know the story where uh, the serpent tempts Eve, and she took the fruit, and she ate it, and they gave some to her husband, and he ate it, and immediately everything changes. They're now hiding. God wants to know what they're doing and why they're doing it, and, and he's, he's kind of saying, what, why are you hiding? And immediately there is brokenness in the relationship between humans and God. Sin and rebellion have come into the world, and the consequence is that the relationship between God and people is broken. But the relationship between people and people gets broken too. As Soon as God says, why did you do this? Adam says, you're the one that created her. I blame you and I blame her. I don't take responsibility myself. Everyone's having an argument. And you know what these arguments are like. It's what we all do at family reunions, right? He um, said, no, you did it and she did it. And that, those arguments are a result of the fall and the sin that enters the world. But it's not just the relationship between God and people and people and people that gets broken and the relationship between people gets broken so badly uh, that within one generation, Adam and Eve's one son kills the other because of jealousy. But the relationship between humans and the entire creation is broken. What used to be an effortless, uh, provision of the earth, giving to Adam and Eve all that they needed. They now have to work with their hands with toil to produce food out of it. They're now at odds against the earth. Natural disasters enter and all of the death and destruction that we know to be part of being alive in this world enter as a result of the consequence of their sin and rebellion against God. And things get worse quickly, and the flood comes. And after the flood, what we see is the story of the Tower of Babel. And at the Tower of Babel, what we see is that humans have said, yeah, listen, we know that, God, you promised that you'll never flood the world again, but we're going to build a waterproof tower just in case. And the way that they're using tar and pitch and the way that they're constructing it is so that it's waterproof and it can go all the way to the heavens. And what you start to realize is that these people are trying to start a rebellion against God. We don't trust you to not flood us, and we do trust ourselves. And in fact, we think we're pretty great, so if we can just build a tall enough tower, we'll just storm the gates of heaven and take over and become immortal ourselves. So God looks down at these rebellious people who don't trust Him and are rebelling against Him, and He says, if as one people speaking one language, they can do anything, then I need to scramble their languages and scatter them across the face of the earth. That's exactly what God does, and the result is exactly as he anticipated, is that people begin for the very first time to say, I want to only be around people that speak like me and who I understand, and I don't want to be around people who I don't understand and who don't speak like me. And so in Genesis 11, in the story of the Tower of Babel, what we have is the entry of tribalism and prejudice into the human story. And it's not because God desired that. It's a result and consequence of sin and rebellion. And so the, the Genesis story begins with these two or three stories that show humans choosing sin and rebellion against God. And the very natural results of that are that violence and animosity and enmity breaks into human relationships. And after the Tower of Babel, what we see is that it becomes tribal. If for the very first time people say, I'm only going to be with my people that are like me, that's who I trust, that's who I'm, I'm going to be with, and we're going to scatter and spread out from all of you guys because we don't trust you, and in fact we're going to try and gain advantage over and above you every time the opportunity presents itself. And so here's the conclusion of the sermon. And if you fall asleep, you'll have it. We're going to get there through a longer journey later. But the conclusion that you're going to eventually hear is this: If, in any way, you in your life choose to pursue prejudice, racism, or division, you are choosing the way of the consequence and consequence and curse of sin and rebellion against God. That's the cause you're advancing. But if you choose at any opportunity to advance unity and love and reconciliation and peace, then you are on the side of the cross of Jesus Christ and you advance the cross in the world. Those are the choices. And it's important to understand that one of the things Jesus is doing in the cross is bringing peace and reconciliation and unity, and he's destroying that which divides. And that this is the core of what's going on. Now, now how does that happen? In Genesis chapter 12, after all these things are breaking and going very badly, in Genesis chapter 12, God starts working his plan through one man and his family. And God comes to Abraham and he says to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make you three promises and it's going to be a covenant. So I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And the three promises are are roughly this, I promise you a land that is flowing with milk and honey, a land that will be yours and belong to your descendants. And he tells them not only will you have this land, but that land will be filled with so many descendants, as many as the stars in the, the sky and the sand on the seashore will be your great nation that comes from your family. And it would be easy to think, well, wait a minute, I thought we said that God is opposed to treating some people better than others, and it sounds like he's giving Abraham and his family special treatment here, and to some extent it is, unless you pay attention to the third promise, which is, Abraham, through you and your family, I will become a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And that third promise is the beginning of God trying to fix all that humans have already broken of God saying, I've got to start putting together through peace and unity what you have already broken with prejudice and racism and violence. So God's already beginning to do the work of putting it back together. He's going to do it through Abraham's family, through this nation of Israel and Judah. And in fact, as you go through the Old Testament, one of the things you can do at any point is ask yourself, how are these three promises going? Are they being answered and fulfilled, or are they really in a bad place? And you just give them a letter grade, and that will reveal to you the current relationship status with God and his people. And so when when Israel is unfaithful to God, and they go off and they practice immorality and pursue uh, the idols of the countries that are around them, what you'll immediately see is that their numbers will be reduced, violence breaks in, other countries will attack them, and that they become a blessing to no one and they get beat up by everyone. That's their story, that the land that was promised is suddenly invaded by outside forces. So by the end of the Old Testament, there are people that has Israel, the 10 tribes of of Israel, have all but been completely destroyed by the Assyrians. The Judeans have been taken off uh, to to Babylon in exile, and even though they've come back by the end of the story, the place that they've come back to is a shattered shell of what it used to be and they can't seem to figure out why God won't come back and live in the temple among them things are really bad are they a great nation not what they thought they should be are they plentiful and living in the promised land not in the way that they thought they should with security and blessing are they a blessing to all the nations of the earth it's hard to figure out how that could be true Throughout their history, they've been in wars and skirmishes with Egypt, with the Philistines, the, the Hittites, the Amorites, the, all the other ites, all the other people that live in this land, the Canaanites. They get into uh, wars with the Medes and the Persians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians. And by the time we get to the New Testament, Rome has come in and has made them one of the countries that it occupies and rules over. Uh, they're a subset of the Roman Empire that has very little influence on Rome or anyone around them. This isn't the promises that they were given. It's not the way things are supposed to be. And so the Old Testament ends with the question that the New Testament has to start asking. How in the world will this little nation that keeps getting beat up by every one of their neighbors ever become a great nation that's a blessing to the whole world? How could that even begin to happen? And that's the question that the Gospels begin to answer very quickly in the birth, life, and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, as the seed of Abraham's family, is going to be the one who brings the blessing to all the nations. Often not in the way that anyone expects. But Jesus, in his ministry, goes about the work of doing, uh, fulfilling the promises really from both ends. He's doing the God part of the covenant and the promises, and now he's doing Israel's part of the covenant and the promises so that this can actually get done. And yet, as Jesus understands that part of his role as the Messiah is to be a blessing to all the nations, when he would have walked into the temple with the apostles and others who were there with him and he would have been teaching, Uh, there would have been an outer gate around the outside of the temple And this outer gate or balustrade would have had a a large stone sign. And we know it because one of them is today uh, on display in the Istanbul Archaeological Museum. You can go see this stone today. And some of them were in Greek, some in Latin, uh, which is important to know. uh, Because if you're Jewish, you speak Hebrew or Aramaic. If you're a Gentile, you speak Greek or Latin. This sign is for people that aren't Jewish. And the sign has red paint in the letters to make sure that you can see it. There's still remnants of the red paint that was in there. So that as you approach the temple of God, if you're a Gentile, there's a sign in your language. And here's what the sign says. No stranger or Gentile is to enter within the balustrade round the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. That's the welcome booth at the temple. If you're a Jew, a child of Abraham, come on in, come close to God. Come close to the Father. But if you are an outsider, a Greek, a Roman, an Egyptian, an Ethiopian, if you are not a child of Abraham, you stop here, and if you go through this gate, When we kill you, we warned you, and it's your fault. Jesus, it's no wonder when he walks into the temple, says, My God, my father desired for this temple to be a house of prayer for all nations, and yet you've turned it into a den of robbers. He's furious. And he calls them to change the way that they're doing because Jesus understands that part of the promise is made to Abraham that he is fulfilling in his own life, death, and resurrection is to become this blessing to all the nations so that they can all come in to the house of God. But as he's doing this, everyone else is struggling to get on board. Everyone else understands that the dividing wall is still there. The blessing to all nations promise is not going well at all. And so Jesus, in his ministry, starts to welcome people that are outsiders. And and Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, starts to explain how the gospel functions. And the gospel that Paul describes in Ephesians begins the way that we would expect it to, based on the way that we talk about the gospel. If, If I were to ask you, why did Jesus die on a cross? You would say, Jesus died on the cross. We learned this in elementary school. Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins. So that if I believe and are baptized, I can be saved, and I can have my sins washed away, and I can live with God for eternity. That's the plan of salvation. And it is the plan of salvation, but it's not all of the plan. Now, Paul is going to talk in Ephesians 1 and 2. It's what we've been talking about the last two weeks, that that all does happen. That when you come as a believer to be in Christ through grace... That what happens is when you're in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Which means that the part of the curse from Eden that separated you and broke your relationship with God gets fixed enough that God lives inside of you. And, And it tells you that now you're not separated from God. You are an adopted daughter or son of the King, of the Father. You're God's children. And He brings you in and He just loves you. And so that relationship is, is fixed and it's restored. And that part of salvation is there in the beginning parts of Ephesians. But now in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul's going to pivot to talking about how if you're in Christ and you're an adopted son or daughter of, Jesus, of God with Jesus, it's actually going to make a difference in how you relate to other people. Yes. It's actually going to make a difference in how you behave socially and relationally with other people in the world. So Paul writes, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose, and this is so important for Paul, he's just given this incredible image. He's saying, listen, you know, Jews and Gentiles, that we all view each other as two humanities, that we're that divided, that that you're one type of people and we're another type of people, and there's all of the pain and the anger and the violence of the past, and that separates us. In fact, if you've been to the temple, you've seen the sign." The dividing wall of hostility was an actual thing in their world that they knew and recognized. And when you ask Paul, what was the reason that Jesus Christ was willing to be crucified? He says, his purpose was, what was Jesus's purpose? His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Did Jesus die on the cross to save you from your sins? Yes. Only? No. One of the reasons Jesus died on the cross was so that his people would become one new unified humanity, no longer characterized by hostility and division. And when we deny that, we reduce the power and reason and purpose of the crucifixion. He, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. When Paul wants you to know something is important, he'll mention the Father, Son, and the Spirit to let you know that the entire unified Trinity was on board with this plan. When it comes to the new humanity that God's trying to create, Jesus did it on the cross so that we could have access to the Father by the Spirit. It's that important that the entire God, all of God, gets on board in making this happen. And there's so much that's there in this passage and that we're going to be working through in these other passages. But one of the things I want you to see is that Paul is going to repeat himself over and over again in terms of trying to to communicate different images so that we might actually get what he's talking about. He says that you were once excluded from citizenship. He uses the images of nation, citizenship. But you were once foreigners to the covenants, the images of promises and covenant of hope without God. You didn't have God in the world, and yet now you who were once far are brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. The two groups become one new humanity. He destroys this barrier. Over and over again, he talks about all of these ways that God is in the business of bringing people together in Jesus Christ by the Spirit. But one of the things that's really interesting, and I think it's important that we get this, is that when he starts this passage out, he begins by saying, you remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth, you are Gentiles. He doesn't say you were Gentiles. For Paul, you don't stop being a Greek when you become a Christian. You don't have to stop being a Roman to become someone who is in Jesus Christ. You don't have to stop being a Jew to be a Jew who is in Christ. Paul doesn't understand you to have to erase your identity so that you can have unity. And I think that that's really important because sometimes we forget that and we take that for granted and we get the wrong idea about that today. We think that unity requires sameness or assimilation. We think that unity means that, that we can't be diverse. We need to all look alike, talk alike, dress alike, think alike, vote alike. And then until we do that, this is just probably not going to work, this whole united Christian thing. For Paul, that, that is not part of this. Paul is going to later say, I am a Jew among Jews, a Pharisee among Pharisees. He doesn't have to say, I used to be a Jew, but then I left that outside so that I could come and be in Christ. He doesn't say you used to be an Egyptian, but you have to quit being an Egyptian to become a Christian in Jesus Christ. You don't have to check who God created you to be at the door in order to come to be in Jesus Christ. And what that means for us, when we think about Christianity today, it's that we can celebrate the image of Revelation 7. If you go read Revelation 7, where John is given a glimpse into the throne room of the Lamb, he sees the throne room of the Lamb that is surrounded by a crowd. It's a great multitude, and they're singing praises and glory to the Lamb that was slain. And the crowd is described as being from every nation, tribe, and language. How did he know that? How did he know that those people were from different tribes? Well, the same way we do. They dressed different. How does he know they were from every nation? They looked different. How does he know they were from every language? They were speaking and singing praises to God in different languages. Thank you. Which means that some of us may have assumed that when we get to heaven, that God will make us all Americans so that we can worship him as a way with one voice. Which makes no sense at all considering America was 1,700 years from being born, right? If you've ever thought, I can't wait till we get to heaven, till everyone speaks English, sorry. It's not going to be that way. If it was going to be one language, it'd probably be Greek. Um, But it's not going to be that way. When you get to the throne room of the Lamb, you're going to keep your nationality, you're going to keep your ethnicity, you're going to keep your identity, you're going to keep uh, your language, and then with one voice as one people, we will all praise God. The divisions that come as a result of those differences are gone. The differences are not. God's great vision that's being accomplished in Jesus Christ is a beautiful, united, multi ethnic, diverse family that maintains the beauty of the differences in its unity in worshiping God and loving each other. And if we believe that that's what the throne room is going to look at, what are we waiting for? Why not start practicing living that way today? Start practicing living that way today. This is Paul's vision. And it comes through over and over again as he moves through uh, Ephesians 2 and 3. But he proclaims, Jesus is our peace. Jesus makes the two groups one. Jesus destroyed the barrier the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus' purpose was to build one new humanity out of the two. Jesus preached peace to those who were near and preached to those who were far because everybody needs peace preached to them. We have a tendency to kind of think i'm pretty close to jesus and so they need peace no the people that are near jesus need peace the people that are far need peace because we're all really a little bit prone to divisiveness right so jesus preaches peace to everybody jesus died not just to save us from our sins but to bring us into this beautiful diverse family, destroying the hostile divisions of this world. That's part of the purpose of the cross. And his followers in the 2,000 years since then have wasted so much time building new barriers and new walls and creating new hostilities towards others that are in Jesus Christ. We're missing it. We're missing it. Because if we are spending our time explaining why our brothers and sisters in Christ are them and not us, then we are embracing the curse of Eden and the curse of the Tower of Babel instead of embracing the work of the cross. Because the work of the cross is to destroy dividing walls of hostility, not to find new ones. It's to break all of them down. We keep choosing the punishment of Eden and Babel instead of the blessing of the cross. When we fail to do the work of reconciliation for the wounds of the past, especially wounds caused by Christians in the church, we fail to be the people of peace, the people of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the people who bring unity to defeat divisiveness. So Paul continues in verse 19. Consequently, Paul wants to really quickly give them as many images that reinforce this story as he can. So here's what he says. Uh, he goes, you know, foreigners and strangers, the imagery of nationhood. You're now citizens, right. but you're also members of his house. He uses family language built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus as the cornerstone. It's architectural imagery. He says, in him, the whole building is joined together and becomes a temple not just architecture, but a special kind of building, a religious building, a temple, where God lives in it and does things among the people so that they might bring God into the world and bring the world to God. You become a temple. And he says, in him, you're also being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit, which is a house. Picture after picture after picture, what what Paul is saying is, if you get this, what you'll understand is that when all of you come together with all of your differences to become a unified people, you're a nation, a family, a building, a temple, and a house that God lives in, that God's using for His good purposes. And we get that the Holy Spirit lives in us as individuals who are in Jesus Christ, but something we sometimes forget is that and, and Paul talks about this all the time? We lose it because our "you" isn't plural, and Paul's is. But when he says "you are being built into a temple," he yes. means he means y'all. Yes. You yes. all are being yes. built into a temple yes. all of you. that the Spirit dwells in. And so, yes, does, right. G, does the Spirit live in me? Yes, but the Spirit also dwells among us. Right. Among us. One it holds us together and it unites us and it's one of the things that in a year when we've been very separated and isolated is an incredible blessing that even as we've got uh, dozens of people watching online today that the spirit is among us in a way that doesn't require shared geography because we are in Christ which is a more permanent location anyways if we get this get this what we begin to understand is that God is doing something really incredible in the church that the world needs to see so Paul writes for this reason I Paul the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles and he's writing this letter from an actual prison in Rome he says surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given me to me for you that is the mystery made known to me by revelation as I've already written briefly In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. The mystery of the gospel. What is it, Paul? Is it that that we can be saved and have our sins removed? Is the mystery of the gospel uh, that, that Jesus on the cross paid for our sins so that He paid a debt that we couldn't pay? The mystery of the gospel is this, is that though the gospel, through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members of, together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Uh, together, together, together. The mystery is that Jesus, through the gospel, is pulling all people into one multi-ethnic, diverse, beautiful family. That's the mystery. That's the surprise. No one saw it coming, Paul said. Past generations would be shocked by this, but we can celebrate it. That God's been doing this through the gospel the whole time. And if we begin to understand this, then it changes how we as Christians view those who are in Christ with us. So if I begin to understand that anyone who is in Jesus Christ is not they or them, anyone who is in Christ is we and us. And for Paul, this is so real that it might even change how you watch the news. And here's what I mean when I say that if you watch the news and you see refugees crowding across international borders, if one of them is in Christ, then you can't ask, why are they crossing borders, and why don't they go back home? What you can say is, why are some of us suffering so much, and what can we do about it? Because those people that are suffering, if they're in Christ like you are, aren't they and them anymore, it's we and us. And so if you're watching the news and you see people that are weeping about racial injustices in our world, if one of them is in Christ, then the question isn't, what are they so upset about? The question is, some of us are hurting. How can the rest of us listen so that we can begin doing the healing work of reconciliation that Jesus started on the cross? It's not them anymore. It's we. If you ever watched the news and said, I don't know how they can read their Bible and then vote the way that they do. You have to stop and take a step back and realize that it's not they. Their political affiliation is not their primary source of identity to you. It's whether or not they're in Christ or not. If they're in Christ, that unites you beyond any dividing wall that the world can place in your midst. If you think that that the cross of Jesus Christ is not sufficient to save someone who votes differently than you, then your view of the cross is too small because the cross is sufficient to save. Jesus paid a price that was enough that everyone who is across the political spectrum can come in and be part of the family of God, which is difficult because in our world, we wanna be very divisive politically, but in the family of God, all of those who are in Christ are part of your we and part of your us. And so you can't say they anymore. You can only say, boy, Paul called it a mystery and I kind of agree. But it's true that people come with all their diversity into Christ, and I'm so thankful the grace of Jesus is big enough to welcome in all of us, all of us. Doesn't mean we can't talk about those things and wrestle about those things, but we have to do it as us and we, and not being have animosity and enmity for they and them. Quick story, and then we'll get back into Paul's final prayer, and that's how we'll, we'll wrap up today. Um, 1968, the day after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, uh, Jane Elliott was a third-grade teacher in the all-white Rice City, Iowa. And in Rice City, Iowa, a city that only had white people, she's a third-grade teacher, and, and several months before, they had celebrated Martin Luther King Jr. in their class as one of their Heroes of the Month. And the children were going to come to school the next day confused about why someone would kill a hero. And she knew in her curriculum in social studies she was supposed to be teaching the children a Native American prayer the next day. A prayer that would call them to realize, uh, help me to not judge or look down on someone until I've walked a mile in their moccasins. Here Martin Luther King Jr. gets assassinated, and she doesn't know how she's going to talk to her kids about it, and she decides to give them a two-day lesson that they will never forget. The next day, as her students came into the classroom, Jane Elliott said, you know, it's never okay to judge and look down on someone because of the way God created them. She said, but I want you to experience what it would be like to live in a world where you did. And so for the first day, she said, all of you brown-eyed students, I need to tell you something you're better than the blue-eyed students in this class. You're smarter, you're neater, you're kinder, you're better. And they are lazier and they're stupider and they are more uh, awful and they've got all kinds of problems. And throughout the day, she would encourage the superior students and she would put down the inferior students. The inferior students, she gave a call or two, and she said, you're gonna wear this so that we can all tell you from a distance and know that you're probably about to do something stupid and wrong. The superior kids are gonna get five extra minutes of recess, they get to go to lunch early. They can have seconds, you guys can't. And she gives, creates this whole experience. On the second day, they came to school and she said, I made a mistake and I lied to you yesterday. I got the eyes wrong, my apologies, switch. And she had the other kids move the collars to the other set of students. And what happened shocked even Jane. What happened is that throughout the day, these students began to treat each other like garbage. But not only did they within 15 minutes begin to embrace this this view of themselves as being better, but throughout the two days, their school performance changed. The students each day that were the inferior class took longer than they had ever done to go through their phonics exercises. The students that were being told that they were superior finished in a faster time than they had done previously in the entire year. There were fights at recess between kids who called each other names like Brown Eyes, she was shocked at how much they grew into the identity that she gave them in a short exercise. One, two, short exercise. Jane says that I watched what had been marvelous, cooperative, wonderful, thoughtful children turn into nasty, vicious, discriminating little third graders in a space of 15 minutes. She says she realized then that she created a microcosm of society in a third grade classroom. She did this every year for years. The third year she did it, they filmed it, made it into a special that you can watch on YouTube today. It's 30 minutes long, and you can watch these kids go through this exercise. And if you think, man, it's crazy that kids would do that, she started doing it with adults, and you'd be disappointed to know that the adults behaved in almost the same way and almost as quickly. She's been doing it ever since. And if you think to yourself, man, this is a world away from now. Those third graders that she first did this experience on turned 60 years ago, just a few years back. Recently, she was asked in an interview uh, that she gave last year, what did you learn? She says, what I learned is if I knew then what I knew now, I don't know if I would have done this exercise because I didn't know that my kids would be harassed and called names throughout their childhood because of my involvement in this exercise. I didn't know that I would eventually lose my job, I would lose my friends, that my parents' businesses would go out of business, that we would be uh, ostracized and persecuted and harassed just because I would stand up and say that I believe that people shouldn't be judged by their physical appearances God gave them. Whether she knew it or not, she was doing the reconciling, bringing together of people, breaking down the dividing wall of hostility that the cross calls us to be doing. And she suffered for it. She suffered for it. The conclusion that this, this study inevitably draws us to is that racism and prejudice are not born into us, they are taught, modeled, and then repeated. And if that's true, then if we're going to break out of the challenges and the curses of Babel and Eden in our world, then we as Christians who bring peace and unity have to be more intentional about bringing peace and reconciliation and healing than the people in our world who are bringing racism and prejudice and division and hostility. Because they're pretty active right now. And we can't just wait for the world to unlearn what is being modeled in so many unhealthy ways. We have to be actively pursuing peace and reconciliation and unity. We need to be careful when we say that we miss the good old days that we realize that there's still a lot of room for improvement. We need to be careful and make sure that our us and we are defined first and foremost by being in Christ and not anything else that creates a dividing wall of hostility between us and someone else who is in Jesus Christ. If you want to know what Paul cares about, you look at what he repeats and you look about what he prays about. Amen. Which brings us to the conclusion I promised you earlier. If you do anything that is prejudiced or racist or divisive or hostile to other people who are in Christ, then you are advancing the cause of the curse of Eden and Babel. And if you are doing anything, that advances the cause of the cross. You do it by promoting unity, love, peace, compassion, and destroying the dividing walls in this world. And when we do those things, we advance the cause of the cross, the cause of the kingdom. The question today and every day is which one of those are you going to choose? Which one will be the calling card of your life? Which one will we make the character, characteristic of the kingdom and of the church? If you need to respond to the gospel this morning, please come forward as we stand and sing.